understanding and my aha moment when I was in optometry school and in residency was, and even kind of my drive into being more plant-based, was how the back of the eye is a giant meshwork of blood vessels. And if you have diabetes, high blood pressure, all of these, if you are eating a bad diet and you have a poor lifestyle, you're not exercising, your blood vessels get damaged. And if the back of your eye is nothing but blood vessels, you're increasing your risk for high hypertensive retinopathy from high blood pressure, diabetic retinopathy, you can get cholesterol plaques in the back of the eye, you can have a stroke in the back of the eye. You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 173. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am your host, Dr. Yami, board-certified pediatrician, certified lifestyle medicine physician, certified health and wellness coach, author, speaker, mother, wife, and human being. I passionately believe in the power of diet, habits, and mindset in sparking and sustaining well-being and joy in our lives. This podcast combines expert interviews and thoughtful monologues to explore plant-based nutrition, lifestyle medicine, parenting, mindset, and other exciting and fun topics. I hope that these episodes inspire you, uplift you, and equip you with the knowledge and tools to live your best life. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Hey, hey, veggie lovers. Welcome back to Veggie Doctor Radio. I have another fabulous episode for you today with Dr. Joseph Allen, who is an optometrist who is also YouTube famous, but he answers a lot of questions, talks about diet for eyes. It's going to be great. I know you're going to love it, but I want to remind you that the information on this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not meant to replace careful evaluation and treatment. So if you have concerns about you or your child's health, nutrition, eating, growth, your eyes, please consult a healthcare professional. So let me tell you about Dr. Joseph J. Allen. He is a practicing optometrist at the Pinecone Vision Center in Sartell, Minnesota, and is the founder of Dr. Eye Health, an educational YouTube channel with more than 400,000 subscribers providing information about eye health, ocular disease, and vision products. His videos cover a range of topics that his subscribers frequently ask about, eye floaters, glaucoma, dry eye syndrome, contact lenses, eyeglasses, and more. Dr. Allen has been featured in Ask Men and Oprah Daily and was awarded the Media Advocacy Award from the American Optometric Association in 2021. In his free time, he enjoys rock climbing, running, playing video games, hiking, and biking. So in this episode, we talk about his eating journey whether he considers himself plant-based, how he got there, why diet is so important for eye health. If people could change just one thing in their diet, what would it be? I love his answer. Hopefully you won't be too surprised. And what other lifestyle habits are important for maintaining eye health? We also talk about the myopia epidemic, the epidemic of nearsightedness. I am fascinated by this discussion we had about this and really have started thinking about it and how I'm going to counsel my patients. But it's a great episode. I know you're going to love it. I hope that you check out his YouTube channel, Dr. Eye Health. Lots of fun videos on there. He's a great speaker, a great educator. And thank you, veggie lovers, for being here. So without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Joseph Allen. Dr. Joseph Allen, welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. Hey, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Yami. This is a huge honor and privilege for me to be here with you. Thank you. Awesome. Well, as I was saying before we started recording, I met you on Clubhouse, and I was very intrigued because I've only had one other eye doctor. I had an ophthalmologist on, but we didn't barely covered anything about eye health. We were talking about all kinds of other things like spirituality and stuff like that. So 
I thought it would be great to have another eye doctor on and you are an, you're an optometrist. We can talk about eye health, but before we get into that, when I met you on Clubhouse, we were in a plant-based room. And so that was also very intriguing to me. And I would love to hear about your way of eating, your journey, how your diet has evolved over time. Do you label yourself in any way? So yeah, give me all the details on that. So I do uh, identify as kind of going plant-based. You know, I've kind of waxed and waned in how strict I am with that, but uh, I would say the vast majority, I'm probably in the upper 90% plant-focused. And I've been that way for the last five, six years since finishing residency. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the way I found my way to eating a plant-based lifestyle um, was mainly because of my experience as a resident at the VA Medical Center here in Minneapolis, where I did my residency there in 2015 to 2016. And during that time, as uh, perhaps you know, or, or any other doctors who maybe listen to this, like there, the experience in the VA Center, uh, largely male population, older individuals, and a lot of people are sick. <laughs> and like I'm working in the ophthalmology department, so. You know, I'm, I'm seeing everybody who's diabetic should be having an eye exam at, well, at least once a year. And almost every patient I had was diabetic, high blood pressure, cholesterol, erectile dysfunction. They're on depression medications, the anxiety medications. They've had uh, already one or two strokes. They have cardiac disease. They have uh, kidney failure. You know, just it never would end. And it was when I had somebody who was healthy, it was bizarre right? Uh, but a few times. And throughout my residency, I, I would have probably less than 10 patients ever in that entire, uh, in a residency for optometry, it's only one year. But in that experience, I probably had less than 10 people that would come in that were like 70 years old, they're mentally clear, physically fit, no medications. And I would ask each one of them, like, what is your secret? What's going on? How, how, compared to everybody else, how are you doing this? And every single one said it was diet and exercise, right? And it was kind of that trope, but I, and as a resident, it didn't click in my head until I finished residency. And then I started seeing patients in private practice outside of, outside of the hospital. And I realized people were still the same way. It wasn't just the VA. And I was like, is this just the way we are? Are we just destined to be sick as we get older? Like, is there anything I can do as an eye doctor? What what should I be educating my patients about? Uh, and that's that's a whole other part of it because we see so many diabetic patients, and part of it's it's part of our training. It's part of just standard of care that we have to educate our diabetic patients that you need to have tighter control of your blood glucose. The, the studies show that the tighter control you have the less likely you are to have diabetic retinopathy, the less likely you are to have sight, uh, sight loss due to your diabetes. So I was like, well, what, what diets should I be recommending? And I realized in school, you don't really get that much. Mm-hmm. So more or less, uh, long story short, I ended up just diving into kind of more research, listening to more podcasts with cardiologists and other um, more health health or nutrition kind of f- more focused medical professionals and I found myself just reading more and more support for more of a plant-based lifestyle especially when it comes to the heart and cardiology so um, I start, I said you know what I have a sister-in-law who at the time was been vegan and been kind of um, just really huge supportive very supportive of that for years and I was kind of laughed at it. I'm like, oh, yeah, tofu, okay, ha-ha. Uh, and I thought, you know what? It's not going to hurt me to try it. And uh, I just jumped into the deep end of the pool, and within one to two months, my eczema was clearing up. My The GI issues I had since I was a kid, um, I had terrible GI issues. That started clearing up. And I had more energy. I was sleeping better. I, and I even, I swear, I started thinking more clearly uh very anecdotal but (laughs) i uh it changed me and uh, i uh i really believe in it so 
uh, that's that's kind of my long story of how I find myself being more plant-based. Wow, that's Thank amazing. You. Well, and it sounds like you didn't even switch expecting for any of those conditions to change, did you? I, I was kind of hopeful. Um, not necessarily the eczema aspect, um, but I was curious how my stomach would handle it because, again, I had stomach issues since I was a kid, uh, whether it be, you know, you know, TMI, but too much like, you know, either bloating or constipation or, you know, reg regular bouts of diarrhea. And, again, as a kid all the way through high school and, and the, the best part, which my, my wife loves, is that in college I had terrible gas <laughs> and uh, like bad enough where not my roommates didn't like it, but the guys down the hall who didn't even really know my name, they knew that I was like the guy with bad gas. Oh my it's, gosh. You know, potentially wow, I mean, well, I got to stop there because <laughs> I live with three men, okay? So I have my husband and my two sons and there's always this joke that guys are just gassy, right? Mm -hmm. If you had the reputation among other men that you were gassy, that's got to be pretty bad. <laughs> it was. Uh, and uh, I'll even say, like, I think it hurt my chances with some girls in college that I was like, pursuing. Uh, because it, it was just, it was, it was part of something I always had, was GI issues. And then finally, when I made that switch, it was it was scary to me how like I just I wasn't bloated all the time, I wasn't gassy all the time, and then when I did, you know, we all we're all human, and I love that you're part of your intro that you say you're human, uh, that means so much. Um, but yeah, we we are flatulent, we have gas, and now I don't have as much gas, and when I do, it's not it doesn't doesn't clear out a room like it's so that's it's I, I again it. it one of the many benefits that I experienced. And I was just like, wow. So it must be like putting cleaner fuel into my system, that sort of thing. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, I want to go back because I think what you said about going to residency at the VA, and I'm a pediatrician, so I didn't really spend a lot of time at the, v the VA, but my husband, he's an internal medicine doctor. Oh. So he did spend a lot of time at the VA and I hear a lot of these stories, but I'd love to go back to your when you commenced going to the VA, was it shocking for you? Was it what you expected when you went to optometry school? Is that kind of what you were envisioning that it would be like to be an optometrist to deal with all these chronic conditions? Or were you expecting something different? So when I went into optometry school, I, I think when I was young, when I was 13, teenager, uh, and I started kind of getting interested in eye care, I had this uh, kind of thought that, hey, I'm just going to do more glasses, contacts, I'll help people see their very best, I'll help kids get into contacts, it changed their life, I mean, it changed my life, that's how I became really in love with optometry, was getting contacts at age of 13, it just, again, changed my life, opened so many opportunities for me, that, so that kind of envisioned that, and I was at a pivotal point when I was deciding in college, I was shadowing both an optometrist and then I shadowed an ophthalmologist, and I was trying to decide which way do I go, because with ophthalmology, it's uh, it's more operating room OR surgery, mm -hmm. and so I shadowed that, and I nearly passed out. <laughs> uh, and so I found out as a good lesson, and this is something I recommend for anybody who's thinking or maybe has a kid who is thinking maybe going into healthcare of any profession. Shadow, ask doctors, mm -hmm. ask what their lifestyle is like, because the, the, I, I how how t I don't think I mean I. I just don't, I, I mean, I, I am very skilled with my hands when I have a patient who's in the clinic and has a coronal abrasion or they have a foreign body in the eye. I'm very good at removing that. And cataract surgery, that's not a problem because there's almost rarely any blood you see. But when I was shadowing, we had a pediatric case come in for pediatric strabismus surgery. And as soon as I saw like a kid getting cut open, um, and at that time, I, again, I was like in early college years, I was like a sophomore in college, and I just... I, I nearly I just I fainted there in the in the operating room. So, good lesson for me. Lesson learned early on that surgery was not for me. So I was able to sheer, just kind of steer my track toward optometry. But then, just like you mentioned, once you get into school and you start hitting all the pathology, uh, and with optometry it's not just ocular pathology. You have to learn all basically the first one two years of med school and optometry dental school. They're all kind of forming the same thing. You have to cover anatomy, pathophysiology, and not just, again, the eyes, but all over the body. And then pharmacology. But yeah, uh, 
when it came to the disease aspect, and that's really what I wanted to do. I wanted to be able to like treat all the different infections, and it just you start hammering things like diabetes. Like, wait, we have like six lectures just on diabetes. How severe is this? Uh, and then, of course, high blood pressure, and then you have Holland horse plaques and vein occlusions, artery occlusions. It just it never ends. Uh, but that's kind of where I found my love into it. And all of my professors, of course, that I looked up to and admired, they all did residencies, and they vouched for different programs. And uh, some of my mentors, they all did residency programs through the VA, and they're all in ocular disease. So I kind of followed in their footsteps. But it's, it, it helps me. It, I think it's enlightened a lot of my life to better understand myself by studying anatomy, physiology, um, and certainly with the eyes. So... That's kind of how I, I found my way through that. Wow, that's so interesting. Did you ever feel a bit disillusioned or depressed about the state of health in our nation as you were doing those rotations? It is. There are times when you get frustrated and you start questioning, like, why? Why is everybody ill? <laughs> Again, uh, especially when you're uh, in a residency in a hospital setting. And, of course, you normally don't see healthy individuals coming in to the hospital yeah, you see people who are ill, and yeah. you're just bombarded with it all day, every day, and you don't have somebody, you don't, you know, even from my side of things, when you treat somebody, or even something as simple as you prescribe a pair of glasses, you don't really get the positive feedback that they're happy with the end result. Uh, you know, you only get the negative aspect, the, the complaints, the issues, you, you never hear that you did a good job, and so it, it can become a, a negative aspect, so I think like you said, there's a lot of mental health that, as practitioners, uh, I've listened to some other of your podcasts, and I think that's a that's a big aspect, and and just yeah. knowing how to deal with those tough situations and, and seeing yeah. negative parts. Yeah. No, I agree, especially with the direction that things are going. There are a lot of sick people in this country, and it's gonna get worse before it gets better. Unfortunately, you know. So I think that's why it's important that there are people like you that are in the healthcare field, but also talking about lifestyle medicine. So obviously I'm a big proponent of lifestyle medicine and I feel like it can apply to every single profession. You're an example of that. So let's go into that. Why is what we eat so important for eye health? How does our diet actually affect our eyes? That's one of my favorite things to think about and uh, I really need to advocate more loudly about this. Uh, so your eyes are one of the most highly metabolic tissues in the body. It's really an extension of your brain. And if you think about, I, I don't remember the exact statistics, but I think like your brain absorbs like one fifth or 20% of the glucose that you, that you, that you use in your body. Uh, it just, it constantly is requiring metabolic energy, the amount of oxygen that it's using. It's somewhere in that. It's like 20, 25% of both the oxygen and the glucose metabolism. It all goes to your brain. And the retina in the back of the eye that gives you your eyesight, you know, it's kind of the satellite receptor that picks up all this light energy. It's constantly, from the moment you wake up and you open your eyes, it's constantly being bombarded with light energy, which creates reactive oxygen species, oxidative stress. So your body needs antioxidants. It needs these micronutrients to help support this tissue and essentially recharge your retina. Because that's how the photoreceptors work, right? The light energy hits the photoreceptor. The photoreceptor gets used up. It sends the signal down your ganglion cells through the axons to the brain. But when it hit, when light hits that photoreceptor, it's like a battery that has its charged 100% used up. And then your body, your retina, takes that empty battery casing and it needs to phagocytize or eat that battery casing and recycle it. And then it has to make a new battery to put in that place. And that's how the photoreceptors are constantly cycling that way. At least that's how I like to think about it. And so your body has to have enough micronutrients to constantly heal this, make new batteries to eat up the dead battery. And so if you're somebody who has poor micronutrient levels, if you're not, um, you know, if you're not eating a good balance of fruits and vegetables and really more vegetables, right? Uh, then that could be, end up leading to deficiencies and potentially even retinal diseases like macular degeneration as you get older. Uh, 
But then there's, of course, other aspects. And this is, again, more of my real understanding and my aha moment when I was in optometry school and in residency was, and even kind of my drive into being more plant-based, was how the back of the eye is a giant meshwork of blood vessels. And if you have diabetes, high blood pressure, all of these, if you are eating a bad diet and you have a poor lifestyle, you're not exercising, your blood vessels get damaged. And if the back of your eye is nothing but blood vessels, you're increasing your risk for high hypertensive retinopathy from high blood pressure, diabetic retinopathy, you can get cholesterol plaques in the back of the eye, you can have stroke in the back of the eye. Um, there's, unfortunately, <laughs> we're all reactive in nature. And we, we feel like we see just fine, you know, our vision's fine, and so unfortunately not everybody has a, a routine eye exam. Uh, and they don't, they don't have, they don't, uh, a lot of us don't go into the eye exam expecting our doctor to tell us bad news, but sometimes we do. But anyhow, so I think that's one of my biggest motivating factors for, for all of that is how important eating a good, healthy diet of lots of fruits and veggies are great for the retina and supporting it, preventing disease, but also, again, eating a diet that is cleaner, less, cholesterol, less problems with cholesterol, less issues with the sugar, to um, keeping those blood vessels working the best they can. And now for a very important message. Hey, veggie lover, if you are looking for free resources to guide you on your plant-based and healthy living journey, go to dryami.com forward slash free for tons of free downloadable PDFs. Hundreds of people have taken advantage of my tips to help them reduce meat and dairy consumption, navigate eating out, and build satisfying plant-based meals. Download one or download them all. And don't forget to share with friends and family dryami.com forward slash free. And now back to the episode. Yes, beautiful. And you said something earlier that I think the common person would probably not link. You talked about how when you started looking into the research for a plant-based diet, most of it was about cardiovascular health. Well, just a regular, you know, Joe, I would say Joe, but your name is Joseph. Isn't that funny? The, the regular Joe, not, not, not the optometrist Joseph, would be like, well, that's, you know, the heart. What does that have to do with the eye? And I think as health professionals in the way that medicine has been distributed, you know, you have these organ systems, right? You're a cardiologist or you're a kidney doctor, or you're a liver doctor. And so a lot of times we don't put these things together, but why is it important that we take care of our heart and our cardiovascular system for our eye health. How is that connected? Well, like I was saying before, it's all about the blood vessels and how uh, high blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes, these are the big, these are kind of the big three, right? These are the ones that you're always worried about. Well, if the blood, if, if your heart is struggling and your arteries are struggling, then same thing for the eye. Mainly when it comes to, like, let's say diabetes, for example, uh, somebody has increased insulin resistance, they have eventually prediabetes and diabetes, the amount of sugar in their blood vessel will eventually uh, cause swelling of a pericyte within the, the actual lumen of the blood vessels. And those, those certain pericytes, they control how well the blood vessels are able to dilate and constrict, as well as the how leaky and permeable these blood vessels are. If that happens, then event, eventually these parasites die, and then your blood vessels can't react, and they can't control how the blood is being, the oxygen and nutrients is passing into the retinal tissues. And then we start seeing hemorrhaging in the back of the eye, because blood starts going from the blood vessel directly into the tissue, and we start seeing bleeding spots. And then you get inflammation, eventually cell death, uh, and then you can even get macular edema, swelling of the retina in the back of the eye. And it just, it just cascades and gets worse and worse. And that's kind of the easy spot. That, that's kind of the very basic understanding of how diabetic retinopathy occurs. But same thing, to go back to cardiology, it's all connected. And so if you're eating heart healthy, 
you're, and, and right, and cardiac disease is like the, one of the top killers of all Americans. And has been for like, I don't know, 60 years or something. I think before World War II, it wasn't as high. Um, but it's, it's just across the board. And so stroke, cardiac disease, I mean, it, uh, all of this combined, significant mortality rate, but it also is all linked to the eye. And so that's, that's again, why I'm just like, oh, if it's good for the heart, it's good for the eye, that's what we should be advocating for. Beautiful. I love that. Well, if you could tell people one thing that it would be your dream come true for them to change in their diet for eye health, what would it be? Leafy greens. <laughs> uh, Everybody, uh, it's funny because the whole carrot thing, everybody says, like, eat more carrots, right? It's good for your eyes. Uh, that's actually not entirely true. I mean, carrots do have a role. Uh, the, the, you know, the beta carotene, the vitamin A is good for the eyes. But it, it's not going to be as, as good as green leafy vegetables are. And uh, I don't even like to tell patients eat more vegetables. I tell them to eat more leafy greens because a lot of people that hear vegetables are like, oh yeah, um, you know, potatoes are vegetable. Everybody gets to eat corn. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I mean, I grew up here in the Midwest in Minnesota and that that's what we had growing up. I, I never had vegetables really. We had, you know, corn or peas, uh, usually not even peas because my dad didn't like them. Um, so it was, it's, <laughs> I don't even, I don't remember really what we had for vegetables. Uh, or if we had them, they were just drowned in butter. Yeah. Uh, so, but leafy greens, mainly because of two antioxidants, and that is lutein and zeaxanthine. They are incredibly high, highly concentrated within the retina of the back of the eye, right in the center bullseye of the retina. That gives you your sharp 20-20 acuity. That gives you your color vision, your ability to read, recognize faces. That, those nutrients highly concentrated there and across many 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 different studies uh, find that people who have more amounts of this in their diet and usually the average American is about uh, four or five times deficient of what the recommended amount is <laughs> uh, for lutein and zeaxanthine but people who have higher amounts have decreased risk for macular degeneration they typically score better on their vision tests they uh, have better contrast acuity, better color perception, uh, and again, just decreasing your risk of like lifetime um, oxidative stress within the retina. So uh, there's a lot of benefits to it. Even reducing your risk for cataracts too. So that's that's another benefit. Leafy greens comes up again and again and again from experts on my podcast, and they're just such a great food. They're the biggest bang for your buck when it comes to producing nitric oxide, which is also really important for our blood vessels. Just like you were talking about before, opening the opening the blood vessels up so that we can get more blood flow, more oxygen to different places in our body. I did that also played a, a role in glaucoma too. <laughs> absolutely. I did a, a podcast episode just on leafy greens and I think the average American across the board, if you average it out of how much our intake is, is really eating like about a teaspoon of leafy greens per day. So it's extremely, extremely low. So there's a lot of places, people that are starting at the bottom, but if you could have your way, how many times a day do you think we should be consuming them? Is there a certain way that you feel like it's best to prepare them to maximize the lutein and the Zeta xanthine, is that what it is? Zeta xanthine, is that how yeah, you say it? Yeah, Zeta xanthine is how it's yeah. um, pronounced. The, so I personally, I am not a huge, I have never been a salad person. I've been growing in the aspect of like, oh, I can sprinkle it a little bit here and there in different foods. You know, whenever I can, I try to throw it in something in there, you know, try to hide it. <laughs> but uh, my big thing, is I just do shakes in the morning. I am... Uh, and it's not just like a little bit of spinach and a little bit of kale. It's like, it's like 90%. Uh, my other friends think you, when they taste it, it's usually gross. So they usually tease me that it's, uh, yeah, when I have my shake, I like to chew it. You know, it's like, <laughs> um, but no, I, that's how I do it. Um, but the, it, what's interesting is at least for the absorption of the nutrients, I have read that it's better to have it warmed up in some way, whether it be, I'm not sure, microwave or boiled or the, the conf 
at least that increases the bioavailability of what I've understood. Mm -hmm. The and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. The the only confusing thing is that I've read like the tables that are um, for regulatory purposes, like US FDA, they've like listed the absorption tables of like one cup raw spinach, and then they say like one cup cooked, and I'm always just like they didn't really specify is that like raw spinach of one cup raw spinach that they've cooked down because once you once you cook it it like condenses and i'm just like oh i don't know like because they have it in cups they don't have it in like ounces and i'm like i don't know i don't know if that changed it or not i don't i don't know the values but i I would love to know your thoughts uh, no it makes it confusing and i do have listeners from all over the world so sometimes people write me and they'll say you said that the USDA recommends this many cups. How much is that in grams, you know? And so I realize it is kind of imprecise the way that we measure things. It really would be better if we weighed things like everybody else does. But, and I don't, I, I can't keep up with all the different nutrients, but I know that Dr. Esselstyn, he treats patients that are like at the end of the road where it comes to heart disease and and cardiovascular disease. And he wants them to eat leafy greens five to six times a day medicinally, like it's a medicine, like they're taking a kind of medicine and he wants them to either steam them or boil them and then add some sort of acid. So a lemon juice or balsamic or something like that. And that increases the absorption of nitric oxide. But I can't keep up because every single nutrient, something different happens whether you put it in a smoothie or you cook it or you steam it or you boil it. But in general, I think that if you're boiling something and you're drinking the water, then you can still retain more of those nutrients as well if you're gonna go the boiling route. But like you were saying before, what I tell people, you know, we could get nitpicky about these things and we can micromanage, but it really doesn't matter unless you're willing to actually consume it, right? So I could say the best way for you to get your leafy greens is to eat like five huge salads a day. And if you're like, I'm just not gonna eat it that way, eat it the way that you're most willing to eat it because at least you're getting it. It's better to get it than not get it. You're gonna get some nutrients, whether you're having it in a smoothie or raw or whatever, if you're not eating it at all, you're not getting any nutrients. So take it in the form you're most willing to consume it. That's my advice. <laughs> that's and uh, no, that's definitely kind of how I, I tell patients as well. And I, I um, so part of our protocol at our clinic, we have a device that has it's called an MPOD, macular pigment optical density, and it helps figure out how much pigment is in the central macula of the eye, and there is a correlation with. Uh, dietary intake of these lutein, zeaxanthine amounts. Um, and some people just tend to have a higher standard amount, whether it be because of their diet, lifestyle, maybe some genetics. But when I have somebody who's a lower amount, I almost always, I, I do, I always talk to them about first their diet, uh, mainly because I, I am such an advocate, like, no, this is not just good for your eyes, it's good for your whole body. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I give them my example. I'm like, because again, we're here in the Midwest, and some people are just, they're steak and potato people. <laughs> and I start telling them about spinach and kale and you know, arugula or just other, you know, Swiss chard, all this different stuff. And they're immediately kind of put off. I'm just like, try, even just try finding a recipe for spinach, a banana, some peanut butter, and blend that up, give it a try. Uh, it's, it's remarkably tasty. <laughs> Uh, and I think, yeah, if you, if you can get it in somehow, even baby steps, if you're just starting out, just trying to get it in somehow. I love it. All right, well, let's talk about other lifestyle habits because diet is super important. It's my favorite thing to talk about, but I'm sure there's other things that apply to eye health. So tell me what other lifestyle habits are important for maintaining healthy eyes? The big ones that almost every doctor will kind of tell you about uh, is certainly wearing sunglasses. And that's because of UV light penetration into the eye. Uh, cataracts development faster with sunlight exposure. There are a lot of epidemiological studies showing UV light and potentially even blue light increasing the risk of some eye diseases, namely macular degeneration. Mm-hmm. Uh, epidemiological studies, they are what they are. They're usually, it's not the best information for studies, but it does give us a lot of understanding and guidelines for risk. The other big thing that uh, I am, again, 
going back to is always exercise, mainly because uh, it's all about the blood vessels again, and the more exercise you, have, exercise you get, the better control of the blood vessels you have. Uh, so th those are the big ones, diet, exercise, UV light protection, whether it be sunglasses, wide brim hat, those are always fantastic. And it's not just protecting the eyes from UV light, also the, the eyelids. The eyelids, mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, it's a pretty high percentage that people will have some form of skin cancer on the lower eyelid at some point in their life. And the top eyelid doesn't get it as much, uh, or sorry, the top eyelid, the lower eyelid doesn't get it as much because the brow protects it a little bit. Yeah, that makes sense because the skin there is just thinner and just more mm -hmm. susceptible. I live in Yakima, Washington, which is central Washington. A lot of people here in Washington, they're like, oh, it must be rainy there. But it's a high desert where I live. So we have 300 plus days of sunshine per year. It gets very sunny. And I'm very interested in longevity and protecting myself. And of course, now that I'm the age that I am, I'm having my grandparents, everybody's getting surgery for cataracts. And I'm just like, oh, man. And I'm originally from Panama. So Panama obviously is a very sunny place right next to the equator as well. So I have been very mindful about making sure that I am wearing my sunglasses and putting my sunblock on and wearing my hat. But now I feel like I'm getting to the extreme because I just bought some driving gloves. I, I learned this from a dermatologist on Instagram so that whenever I drive, I can protect my hands so I don't get like old lady hands too early. So I'm like completely covered. I have this hat that goes around and like clips in front of my face and <laughs> it's it's kind of ridiculous, but I'm hoping that when I'm 80, I look 40, you know, like take 40 years off if I do the work now. So <laughs> that's, that's how I think about, I try to put things in that perspective all the time, especially like when it comes to my teeth, I'm like, no, I need to brush and floss and take care of my teeth because someday these things may be falling out. <laughs> I don't I want to postpone that as long as I can. Uh, there's so much aspect to that. I, I love that. The, 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 I've never thought about the driving gloves for UV light exposure on the hands, but uh, interestingly enough, a lot of truck drivers, like professional drivers, uh, the front windshield has UV light protection built into it. That's why nice. like transition sunglasses that don't work. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't work in the car. But it's your driver's side window that doesn't have the UV light protection. Right. So interestingly enough, a lot of professional drivers, their left eye will develop cataracts sooner than their right. Whoa, that's crazy. Yeah, because I was telling my husband, he's like, well, you're in the car. And I'm like, no, because you know that your left arm is more likely to get melanoma or skin cancer than your right arm because of driving. So yeah, I'm gonna be protected hopefully. But it and, is, um, I think you get to a certain age and that's when you start thinking, cause when you're young, you're like invincible, right? You're like whatever, I have so many years, it doesn't matter. And you get to like the middle of your life and you're like, oh man, I really need to start thinking about this. I think uh, a thing that's been impacting uh, my family or personally a little bit more is my mother she's getting into her 60s and she's having some subtle memory issues mm. and she is actually going to go see a neurologist to figure out if it's something that's just part of normal aging or if it's something more and i've been listening to more about uh, research on how sleep can potentially or lack of sleep can influence your increased risk and rate of alzheimer's dementia and so I've been uh, really trying to focus more on, on my sleep quality uh, over the last uh, several, several, probably last year and a half, two years. Yes, I have two amazing podcast episodes with the Sure's Eyes. I don't know if you've read their book. And also another book that I recommend if you haven't read on sleep is The Circadian Code. It's so good. Really, really good. I love those. Thank so, you, yeah. Well, hopefully she gets a good visit and a good prognosis and it's just something simple that can be addressed what do you think is a big mistake that people make when they're caring for their eyes probably the, the biggest one is people don't go in to have a routine eye exam some people do but the vast majority of people they they usually don't uh, mm -hmm. they don't go in unless there's something wrong like they notice oh i see you just fine and it's like you know, unfortunately for most eye diseases, they don't affect your vision until it's too late. Yeah. So that's that's the biggest thing. Um, even, you know, I can give so many examples when I have a patient who came in thinking their vision was fine, they just wanted an update in their contacts, their glasses, 
But then I end up finding that I end up finding some bleeding in the retina, or right. I end up finding even potentially cancer or, or something else more devastating. And um, so it's I, I always recommend for everybody, even if you end up not needing glasses, that's fantastic. It's still important to get those eyes ex eyes checked out and examined. So. At what age do you recommend that patients start coming in regularly for their eye exams? So this is, I'm glad that you, you asked this. So the recommended times, uh, as early as between six and 12 months of life should be the wow. first eye exam with an eye care professional. Uh, and thankfully, in many states here in the U.S., they have what's called an infant C exam. So people who can't, who don't have insurance or they can't afford an exam, they don't have vision insurance, for example, they can find a provider in their area through that program. And I think every state is different. But they're able to find a provider, and they'll just get that infant exam for free. The wow. provider will do it, no, no charge. Uh, and that's just to make sure that everything's developing correctly, that there's no major issues. Uh, after, let's say everything works great at that point, everything's fantastic, then around age three, and then the next milestone is right above age five, six, before going into kindergarten, mm -hmm. because so much of the world is learning language reading becomes more important uh and this is unfortunately in some states uh, like the state of chicago and illinois uh state of chicago <laughs> the state of illinois uh they they actually it's a requirement that children have an eye exam before going into kindergarten and so that allows for doctors to catch things like amblyopia or lazy eye uh strabismus uh other deficits in their in their vision um kids who have high hyperopia or an, an isometropia or one eye is farsighted, um, more farsighted than the other, uh, all the different things. And so those are the critical times. After that kindergarten, five age, five, six, then yearly from there on is recommended. And now for a very important message. Hey mama, if you are feeling frustrated about mealtime battles, worried that your child isn't eating enough or eating enough vegetables, afraid that your child is going to get some awful deficiency or disease because of the lack of diversity in their diet, I wrote a book that might be for you. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy is available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Did you know that most children are born with the innate ability to eat the appropriate amount of food to satisfy their hunger and support appropriate growth? Despite this, parents are still anxious and confused about how much and what to feed their children. In addition, many children are labeled as picky eaters or develop behaviors such as hiding and sneaking food. There's also a growing epidemic of dieting behaviors and eating disorders beginning at alarmingly young ages. In my book, you'll learn the five pillars of healthy eating, how to apply intuitive eating through all the stages of development, lifestyle habits that support healthy eating and body image, troubleshooting and problem solving for picky eaters, overeating and dieting behaviors, how to create and foster a healthy body image in your children, how exploring your own body image and relationship with food will help raise an intuitive eater, and what foods to offer your child at different stages of development. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy, available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Are you ready for a fresh approach to feeding your child? For more information, visit dryami.com forward slash book. And now back to the episode. Okay, that's good to know. Yeah, as a pediatrician, I'm screening children. I'm doing their general exam, which includes the eye. And then usually around four years old is when I start doing a basic vision screening. But what I tell parents all the time, I was like, this is like super rudimentary. And if there's any discrepancy or we're not sure, I always refer. But I'll look into that that program and see if Washington State is one of the states that has it. Because I think as a pediatrician, it would be really helpful since I don't have expert training in the eyes. You know, I can catch major things. I can look and look for symmetry and things like that. But 
I'm not doing the exams that y'all do. And, you know, that's, and I have a lot of respect, of course, for, for everything you're doing, because you're looking at the whole body. You're looking at not just the eyes. You got all these things you have to worry about. Uh, and for us, when it comes to the eyes, especially for young kids, uh, their accommodative, their muscle system is so much stronger. <laughs> uh, so for a lot of kids, I, I know a lot of clinics, at least where we're at, they'll have like a handheld digital device that mm -hmm. kind of reads their eyes a little bit. It's really just a, a, an autorefractor that makes bells and whistle noises to keep their attention. And unfortunately, for a child that's having that done, if they're not having their eyes dilated or cycloplegic is the proper term for them, for, for young kids, then they're the autorefraction is not really that accurate mm. because they could be using their muscles to fool the instrument. So when we do see a child, uh, under usually under the age of seven, we, we dilate almost every pretty much every patient in our clinic, but under the age of six or seven, they actually get drops of cyclopenolate to inhibit their accommodative uh, ciliary body muscles so that we can get an accurate prescription and knowing really where their eyes powers are at. Wow, see, that's just like way over my head. So thank you for what you do, because yeah, I couldn't even begin to do any of that. Speaking of, you wrote, when I was learning more about it, one of the things that you are highly interested in is the myopia epidemic, which kind of made me wonder, I mean, is there something we can do about this? First of all, explain my myopia for people that don't know what it is. And so tell me more, what does that mean? And is there something we can do about it? This is a really good topic, even um, maybe even more so for you being that you're all focused on pediatrics. The, so myopia is the fancy medical term for nearsightedness. And the myopia epidemic is even a bigger deal now because of COVID. And the way this is, is our eyes through development from a young age as we get older, as we all go through growth spurts, right? Um, but the eyes in myopia development actually grow longer. So if your eye grows longer, then you also end up with a higher amount of nearsightedness. And historically for humankind, this has never been a serious or a huge issue. Uh, because if, you're, if we're thinking like, if we're going back like a thousand years, how many people uh, were actually learning how to read and write? How many people actually stayed in their schooling education, uh, you know, till they're 18 years old? Now, our education system is so well developed and so many people are expected to start learning to read right at a young age and then stay in school for 20 some extra years of their life. Like we're all going to college and then some people beyond. And we're finding that not just genetics increases your risk of needing glasses, corrective eyewear, but also your lifestyle, your the nature nurture debate, uh, the nurture aspect of how you live your life strongly does influence how your eyes develop and grow stronger. And so, what I'm the, the easy way of saying it is that young kids who already have a genetic susceptibility, especially with parents who are already nearsighted, like my mother, she was like a minus ten. And so I already have an increased risk of developing needing glasses, which I did at age of six, seven, I got my first pair of glasses. And so kids who spend more time indoors, who spend all day in front of a computer screen or a book, like six inches in front of their face, they're sending a signal to their brain and to their eye to reform the sclera in the back of the eye, the white part of the eye, and that actually causes the eye to grow longer and increases the power of their focus and ends up causing them to be more and more nearsighted. So if you fast forward to, that's already becoming an issue. Then you fast forward to COVID and everybody's indoors and all kids are being stuck with an iPad in front of their screen, you know, in front of a screen for eight plus hours a day. Uh, and so we're seeing dramatic increased rates of kids having stronger prescriptions and increased amount of prescription strength is not only a burden on, on the child uh, for the rest of their life, thinking of glasses, contacts, all of that, 
but then their increased risk of retinal detachments in their life and increased risk of glaucoma, cataracts, uh, it, it just it continues to build, um, including what's called myopic maculopathy. It kind of a, it's similar to age-related macular degeneration, but it's basically where they lose their sight to, as they get older as well. So, and that has more to do because of the shape of the eye, because of how it elongates. The, Yes, exactly. It's it's basically the retina stretching out, and because of the way the photoreceptors are, the the back of the eye, the photoreceptors, the retina is given its structural stability by this deeper layer of the retinal pigment epithelium, and eventually it just starts to break down, and it can't spread its nutrients correctly. Uh, there's there's a lot of kind of research going into it, but it's wow. it's it's a concern right now for all healthcare, uh, mainly for the eyes. And there's a lot of research going into ways we can help with this. Uh, new glasses lenses that are being invented that may that are showing in studies to slow down the rate of nearsighted development. Contact lenses, uh, and of course, making just recommendations to parents and to teachers to. Um, to basically once I always tell once kids are done with their schoolwork they should be going outside <laughs> they should not be sitting in front of a, a Nintendo switch or their phone or an iPad for the rest of the evening yeah there's so many reasons why that would be beneficial and as they start to get older they start to get into that middle school even a little bit before kids become so sedentary and they are just in front of screens. Even before COVID, this is really a problem. So it's not just gonna benefit our eyes, but it's going to benefit our bodies to get kick the kids out, go <laughs> play outside. Now I've read a little bit about this and how it was different, you know, back a long time ago when we were outside, we're looking at things further away instead of everything being close up the way it is now. But wow, I had no clue. Now, is it possible to reverse myopia? Because I've seen websites out there talking that it's possible. Is it possible? Yes or no? It is not. Okay. Well, good. Uh, so I, I'm, I, I'm glad you said that because otherwise I'd feel bad that I didn't work harder to reverse mine. There, uh, we've at least found ways to get them to slow it down. But I have never seen any credible sources, and I've dug into this because I've seen these other websites making these claims, and largely from my, from my deep understanding of how these, I don't know, I, I can't even say they're scientists, but these, these people who are making these claims, they are probably, like a lot of it has to do with like orthoptics or vision therapy that's mm -hmm. not used in clinical settings. Uh, these are usually individuals who are probably already over-focusing their eyes, uh, like their eye muscles are more or less fixated in a very tight position. And then they're basically learning how to relax those muscles and not be so over-focused. But in the clinic, whether after surgery or we use like cycloplegia to paralyze the focusing muscles, we don't see it just bounce back to zero. It doesn't happen. It doesn't work that way because the axial length of the eye has stretched yeah, out. That makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. I'd love to know if you have any incredible eye health transformation stories that you can share with us. So I, I have so many different stories I, I, and I love to share them all. I wish we you know, could have had all day to talk about things. Um, so for me, uh, I, I love helping people like I'm sure you have this moment where somebody's really struggling with something. Maybe they've seen multiple providers and they just aren't getting an answer. They're not getting uh, a resolution of something. And then you are able to uh, kind of figure out what to do and solve that problem for them. And that makes you just kind of light. You can, you get all excited about it. I had a patient who had a condition called keratoconus where the front surface of the eye, the cornea, starts to thin degeneratively over time, over their lifetime. And this causes severe warpage of the front surface of the eye that actually makes it look like a cone protruding from the eye. It actually becomes kind of pointy. And with this, they have severe levels of astigmatism. And a lot of people will hear, they're told by the doctor, oh, you have astigmatism. That's very common. And most people don't have that much of astigmatism. 
but people with keratoconus have a severe level of it that's progressive and constantly changing. And this particular patient, she was middle-aged, and she, with her glasses, she was barely legal to drive in the state of Minnesota, which is about 2040. Uh, so she hasn't seen, like, 2020 vision for a long, long time. And one of the best treatments that we have for at least improving acuity, and anybody who's listening to this, if they have a family member who's keratoconus, uh, what's best right now as of new developments in technology is something called corneal cross-linking, which is where we put riboflavin on the surface of the eye, and then they actually cure it using uh, UV light, interestingly enough. Uh, but it strengthens the surface of the eye so it doesn't become progressive. It doesn't continue to thin out, because uh, if in end stages of the disease, people need transplants, the, uh, a corneal transplant. The, to improve the vision, though, uh, you can f have a doctor like myself who has experience in fitting specialty contact lenses. They're not just like the soft lenses that you throw on the eye and people wear them and they're like, oh, yay, this is great. But scleral lenses, the ones I'm talking about, they're large fitting hard plastic lenses that vault completely over the cornea. So they rest on the white part of the eye, 360 around the cornea. Wow. And they're very difficult to fit. Uh, as a professional, you have to have experience in school and then you have to experience working with products and with manufacturers and all the different technology but I was able to fit this one patient and even in the exam room fitting her once I got them on her eyes she started crying uh, because of how well she was able to see it it was like the first time she was able to see uh, and she wasn't even hitting 2020 at that point it was like 2025 uh, so one line worse than 2020. But she was just crying because she had, hadn't seen that sharply, that clearly, uh, for like 20-some years. <laughs> and so uh, with fitting those, we have to let them settle and rest because they, they have to settle down on the eye for about 20, 30 minutes at the very least. So I had her wait out in the waiting room. And this was great for our practice because she was just walking around looking at everything and telling everybody in the office like how amazing she's able to see. But uh, just that that just made me really happy for what I do and how I'm able to help some people. Um, it kind of restores your your excitement and and just love for your profession. Yeah, so that's that a beautiful was, that was story. A good, that's so beautiful yeah. because we take it for granted a lot, right? The ability to be able to see or even for some of us that have some eye difficulties just putting on a pair of glasses or a contacts and yeah you're you're good to go but somebody that had been to multiple doctors probably lost hope was about to get her driver's license maybe taken away because she was about to not be able to drive because she couldn't see well enough and you completely changed her life that's amazing so that's so beautiful thank you for sharing that story thank you what do you wish more people knew about eye health Probably just kind of what you mentioned, that we often take it for granted, that we, just because you think you see fine, doesn't mean that you don't have uh, a lurking disease that could be sneaking up behind you. And it's not necessarily just within the eyes, uh, but it's systemic diseases that can show up in the eye. Like myself, I have a mole in the back of my left eye, which is my dominant eye. And that, that mole or nevi has the potential to grow and become cancerous. And if it did, the number one place it travels to is your liver. And if that happens, there's a 99% mortality rate within five years. So it's serious. There, I think the, the fact that we just say, oh, I'm, my vision's fine. Oh, I don't, need, I don't need to see the eye doctor. It's like, no, you really should be doing it on a regular basis. So, so the nevus is where? Uh, my nevi is in the back of my retina. Technically, it's in the choroid, which is a meshwork of blood vessels behind the retina. And uh, so my, I have a choroidal nevi in the back of my left eye. For I didn't even know you could get it there. I mean, that's, that's amazing. Wow. I mean, it's kind of yeah, cool in uh, some ways. I think for Caucasians, it's somewhere around 7 or 8% of people will have them. Uh, I don't remember the last last time I read that particular study, um, 
but it's it's thankfully it's not very often that it becomes cancerous but it, it can be very serious, uh, as I kind of just said. <laughs> wow. Well, it's a good thing you get your regular checkups and you know who to see if you need that. So. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I've got I've got five other doctors in our clinic who are, are more than happy to do my eye exam. So. I love it. All right. Well, what personal habit are you most proud of and why? For me, I, I, I know, of course, we've talked a lot about this. Uh, if this was anybody else, if this wasn't uh, talking with you on your podcast, I would probably say my diet uh, because of how difficult it was for me. Um, I think even still in the culture that you, that we live in, there's a lot of different opinions about diet or health uh, from all different places. Uh, and I still get, you know, you get bombarded by at different advertisements, talking to you saying like, oh, eat, eat beef or eat this. And um, even my other, uh, I've had people at our clinic and my colleagues, actually my, uh, the ophthalmologist I work with, he teased me for four or five years that every day I showed up with lunch and I'm sitting there eating a salad and all these vegetables. He's like, you're still on that health kick, huh? Um, <laughs> and he's, oh, uh, he's over there eating McDonald's, you know, and then he's getting cool fat sculpting done to help him like lose, to lose weight and improve his appearance. And I'm sitting here. You know, it's like five years later, it's not really a health kick if, you know, if, uh, it's not really a diet anymore. This is my lifestyle. Um, and so it's, it's, it's certainly challenging to stick with it because uh, there's still times I'm just like, darn, I want pizza so bad because I, I miss that taste. But, um, and I don't mean the good pizza where it's like, you know, got the new vegan cheeses and stuff on there. I'm like, sometimes I just crave you know, like a the good old fashioned pizza American pizza, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, or, or burgers, chicken wings are a huge like weakness for me. So I have to like, I have to rethink to myself why I'm doing this and just like, like that, you know, do I really need it? And then sometimes I'll just drink a big glass of water and then suddenly I'm not hungry anymore. So, uh, I, I would say that is, is my biggest, my biggest lifestyle change that's really helped me. Yeah. Well, I commend you. And thanks for sharing that because I'm just going to point something out that I've talked about before on my podcast is uh, for those of you that aren't watching it on YouTube, Dr. Allen is a very lean, handsome fellow. And I think that we have these biases that when we see people that are lean, we assume that they're one naturally lean and two, that it's easy for them to just eat the way that they do or have the lifestyle that they do. But I think it's important that we try as much as we can to remove these biases from appearance because then we assume the opposite for heavy people, for larger bodied people that, oh, they just eat bad all the time and they don't care about their health. But what you're saying is that you too are human and sometimes you just want to dive straight into a big bowl of chicken wings, right? But you say to yourself, that's not the best choice. That doesn't align with my goals. That doesn't align with my values for my own health. And so I'm going to make another choice, even though it feels difficult in this moment. And you know, what's funny is that a few times when I have, um, my weaknesses have gotten the better of me and I have like eaten something, I never feel good about it. Like 20 minutes later, I always mm -hmm. feel like, I feel bad either like physically like being in tune more with my wife and I are always trying to focus more on like what does our body really feel like yes uh, and I think more recent um, podcasts I listened to of yours kind of talked about that and kind of being in tune with your body and feeling how it really feels uh, but I, I never feel good after I let myself go and eat like a slice of pizza or something so it's it, it's it's something, and I guarantee everybody who's maybe starting their journey or even have been, you know, eating very strict, healthy diet for years, there's times when you just, we all have moments of weakness, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it's just part of, part of being human and it's okay to sometimes to make mistakes too. So Yeah. No, and what you were talking about is how you feel after you make one of those choices that you don't feel as well. That's called anchoring. So I work with this with my clients as well, that when you make that choice and afterwards you're feeling bloated or heavy and not good, memorize that feeling. Memorize that feeling and anchor it so that next time you're considering making that choice, 
it's an informed choice, right? Because the marketing part of our brain tells us, don't worry, it's gonna be good. It's gonna be all good. It's gonna be 100% good. But you can be like, actually, I have some data here. I have a memory from the last time I made this choice. And given what I remember, I don't think I'm gonna make this choice. So it doesn't feel, it ends up feeling more like a willing choice rather than a restriction that you've put on yourself. So that's a, that's a very wise thing that you have learned. Well, Dr. Allen, this has been great. Thank you so much for your time. I know that you are very busy. For the listeners out there, uh, Dr. Allen's pretty much famous on YouTube. So I'm glad that I was able to get some of his time for a famous YouTuber to be on the podcast. Definitely check out his videos. There's so much information. I've watched a few of them, very informative. Anything you need to know about eye health, definitely check him out. But I would love to hear from you. How can listeners connect with you? Do you have any products and services you offer? Where you work? Are you taking patients? Give us all the details on that. Thank you so much, Dr. Yami, for that. Uh, so yes, I do practice. I work at the Pinecone Vision Center in Sartell, Minnesota. Uh, I do that half, half the week, and then I actually produce content on YouTube, as you were mentioning, uh, which has kind of been my passion for the last three years. I really found, like, I love public education, and I want more people to know about the eyes, about health, uh, and how I really want to empower people to understand what's going on with their health, because then I feel like they're better advocates for themselves and how they can heal. Uh, and so my YouTube channel is called Dr. Eye Health. When I first started it, my, my best friend who's in... Uh, marketing he i didn't know what to call it and he said just pick three words that you want people to remember about it and i'm like i want people to know that i'm an eye doctor that's about the eyes it's about keeping them healthy so it's called dr eye health so you can check out all of that for information about the eyes uh you can learn about glasses glasses lenses contact lenses retinal diseases cataracts uh dry eyes is a big thing i'm very passionate about uh and it's just I, I never run out of content to talk about. The hardest part is finding time to make content. Yes, I hear <laughs> you on sure, that one. As, as you know, yeah. So, yes. Well, uh, and Halloween is coming up next month. You have an episode on Halloween lenses. I am totally going to look into that because I would just love to do that. That would be so fun. And my patients would love it. The, uh, the big thing about the Halloween lenses specifically, uh, and I'll just give this to you, is to just definitely see an eye doctor in your area about them because most of the Halloween lenses that are made out there are not FDA approved mm -hmm. and they're made uh, in other countries where there's no regulatory, regulatory body on them. And most, and you'll hear this in my videos, uh, most of them are made of material from the 1960s. Ooh. So they're not healthy for the eye at all. <laughs> uh, not until mid-1980s did studies end up finding out that the oxygen percentage of how much oxygen gets to the cornea is needed to prevent hypoxia, uh, neovascularization, decreased risk of corneal ulcers. Uh, and so these lenses are very far behind in technology, and that's why they're not even approved to be made and manufactured in the United States anymore. So, oh, not fun. Yeah, hypoxia it, is it, not good. We like the oxygen. It, yeah, and as long as your doctor can fit them, up, feel like that is a good lens for you and they can prescribe it for you, then perfect. Um, but still, uh, don't, don't want to wear them. Certainly don't sleep in them. Don't wear them too long. Uh, but they are fun. They are fun for costumes. Super cool. Well, Dr. Allen, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you so much. I know that my listeners will love this episode, learning lots of fun tidbits about the eye. So thank you. And I hope that you have a very plantastic day. Hey, veggie lover. I hope that you loved today's episode. Will you take a second and do me a huge favor? Please subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss an episode. You're the reason I'm here and I want to share it all with you. Thank you for listening and have a plantastic day.